You're on with attorney Vince Davis, and the name of this show is Get Your Kids Back Now. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. A secondary purpose of the show is to educate parents and relatives, or at least to show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of this show is to remind the people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box, at the state and federal level, at the state and federal levels. Let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes to help keep our families together. Good morning. It's Saturday morning. It's 8 o'clock. Today is, uh, I believe it's May the 7th, 2016. And today's show is going to be dedicated to talking about trials in the juvenile dependency courts and talking about something lawyers call discovery. Now, I want to define briefly what I mean by trials and what I mean by discovery. Trials are things, or excuse me, are court hearings where people present evidence in the form of putting witnesses on the witness stand, in the form of presenting documents to the judge to support their position. Some people believe a trial is where the attorneys just go and they argue. In my opinion, that is not a trial. Because in a lot of situations, if you go into court and you have a trial, and your attorney just argues without putting forth any evidence in the form of documents and or witnesses, in most of the cases, you're going to lose, mainly because the only evidence in the case is the reports of the social worker. Um, I have read, I believe, in California appellate courts that Argument by the attorney is not evidence, and the judge can only make decisions based upon evidence before him or her. So if someone tells you, hey, we're going to have a trial, but we're just going to have it where the attorneys argue, that's not a trial. And most likely, unless you know there has been some type of chambers conference beforehand, most likely you're not going to win. Sometimes uh, there's chambers conferences where the judge gives an indicated or a tentative ruling, and you know it may not be necessary for you to have a trial because you're going to win. But if you're not going to win, it's my suggestion that you talk to your attorney and perhaps insist with your attorney um, that you have a trial where real evidence and real witnesses and real documents and exhibits are introduced for the judge to consider. Um, I did a trial, it's been a couple of months now, uh, in San Diego, and it was a trial at what's called the 366.21F hearing. At that trial, um, the social worker's report indicated that the mother's reunification services should be terminated and that the children should be placed or remain placed in their foster home 
and that uh, the court set what's called a 366.26 hearing to terminate the parental rights of the mother and to uh, allow the foster mother to eventually adopt these two small children. I think the children, the ages were about six and four years old. Um, So at the first hearing where this recommendation was made, the county council and the minors council both told me there was no reason to have a trial, that the mother was not going to win a trial, and that we would just be wasting the court's time in having this trial. Um, I did not know either of these um, attorneys very well. And they didn't know me very well, although I had had a couple of cases in the past with the minor's attorney. Uh, The social worker, of course, wanted the children adopted by the foster parent. The minor's attorney wanted the children adopted by the foster parent. In the minor's attorney's opinion, she believed the children were well taken care of and uh, that they wanted to remain in the foster home. By the way, which wasn't true, but that's what she told me. Um, There was also another attorney on the case, a court-appointed attorney for the father, uh, who happened to be a very, very good attorney. Anyway, um, I let them know that my client and I were not in agreement with the foster parent uh, keeping the children, and um, we were not in agreement, and we wanted the children returned home. And, And they kind of chuckled. They kind of laughed. Like you got to be kidding, and you know, reading the the social worker's many reports leading up to this court date, it looked really bad. Um, but I, I I had talked to my client, and something that I do personally, and I encourage attorneys that work with me in my office to do is, I had discovered the story, or tried to discover the story, in the terms of how Jerry Spence. Uh, says, you know, you have to dis- you have to discover your client's story, and um, I I I felt that my client had gotten uh, you know a very unfair, very unfair treatment throughout the entire case, and I and I felt after talking to the social excuse me after talking to the foster parent uh, after talking to my client the parent. I, I got the impression that a lot of the things in the report were false, just you know, just false. Either the social worker was making the biggest mistake uh, that you could make in reporting on the case. Perhaps she got my client confused with another of her clients, or she was just outright not telling the truth in the report and twisting facts to make them look negative instead of when the fact was really positive. Or, or a neutral fact. Um, I tell clients all the time, look, these social workers are professionals. Uh, they're professionals at what they do. They're professionals at writing reports. Um, you know, and they do this all the time, every day, all day. So if you think that, um, you know, you are going to have some type of influence or you're on equal footing with this social worker, that is an incorrect assumption. So don't ever think that. Anyway, getting back to the hearing. Um, So I told the judge, you know, that we wanted to set it for trial, that I wanted to present evidence and I wanted to present uh, witnesses. 
And the judge didn't say anything, but the kind of look on her face, and maybe I was misreading the judge, the look on her face was, okay, Mr. Davis, um, we're going to waste some time, uh, but I'll give you your right to have a trial and your client's right to have a trial. So we had the trial. Um, and the social worker testified first. The social worker was, interestingly enough, called by the county council as the county council's first witness. Now, in my in my opinion, if I was representing the county, um, that was a big strategic mistake. But anyway, the social worker uh, got on the stand, and she testified uh, for what seemed like a 90 minutes, a couple of hours, and, you know, the... After her testimony, my client uh, seemed like we were in a deeper hole than where we, where we were when we began the trial. Um, but I was able to cross-examine the social worker effectively. Um, I've received some training in terms of how to cross-examine people uh, through the Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College um, I've also subsequently received training, some great training, by the way, from uh, Dan Ambrose's uh, uh, course, um, Trojan, The Trojan Horse Method. You could Google that. That's a fascinating um, uh, extension of the Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College's uh, techniques. Anyway, I was able to cross-examine the social worker. And in the cross-examination, I was able to get her uh, to make some admissions, uh, to make some admissions that what she had reported in her uh, report, that it wasn't quite accurate. And I'd have to say that these admissions were, um, were significant admissions. Uh, additionally, uh, uh, we had to take a break, and it, it, it was kind of, it got really bad in my opinion for the social order, and they took a break, and they continued the case for the two weeks. Um, when we came back, uh, I think I continued uh, my cross-examination of the worker, and the funny thing is, um, when I came back, the social worker uh, changed a lot of her testimony. She had had two weeks to clean up, She had, but she changed a lot of the testimony, but it was the type of thing where she did herself more harm than good uh, because at this point the judge, to her credit, just wasn't having it. The lady had already defied ABC, and if she comes back two, later, two, two weeks later and testifies XYZ, you know, it's uh, the judge, uh, as I looked at it, kind of out, looked at it as if it was kind of outrageous. Anyway, after I got through with the social worker, um, the father's attorney uh, cross-examined the social worker, and the father's attorney was a court-appointed attorney down in San Diego, a very experienced guy, a very good attorney, and he did a great job, and he cleaned up a lot of things that you know I had not really focused in on or, or had missed. And then the social worker's attorney um, rested her case and the minor's attorney didn't put on any evidence. So I made a motion to have the judge rule in our favor without putting on any evidence. And we argued that motion, it seemed like, you know, for an hour. I'm going to stop the story right there. I'm going to take a call. 
And after I finish these calls, I'm going to try to get back to the story because I want to tell you what happens so you will know what happens when you actually have a trial, even if the people in the courtroom think you're going to lose the trial. So I'm going to take a call right now from area code 310, ending in 08. Good morning. You're on with attorney Vince Davis. Good morning. Hello, you're on with attorney Vince Davis. Okay, so nobody's there. The next call I'm going to take is from area code 310, ending in 71. Good morning, you're on with attorney Vince Davis. Yeah, Debbie. Hello? Oh, shit. Oh, I didn't know that. You're on on with attorney Vincent Davis. Oh, wow. Okay. Hi, did you have a story or a question, or were you just listening? Okay, maybe he can't hear us. Anyway, I'll go back to the story. So we argued this motion, and basically what I tell the judge is, based upon the testimony of the only witness the social worker had called, excuse me, the social worker's attorney had called, which was her client, and based upon her client's reports that had already been admitted into evidence, I argued that the social worker's testimony and that the social worker's reports were not credible and that the judge shouldn't consider her testimony and her reports credible and that the judge should rule in our favor since the social worker hadn't carried her burden of proof to keep the children away from the mother and stop the children from being adopted. I do that in cases where I think the social worker and her attorney have put on evidence that is not sufficient to win or to carry the burden of proof. In this case, luckily, the judge agreed with me. She found that the social worker's testimony was not credible. She found that the social worker's report uh, reports were not credible, and she ruled in my client's favor and gave us gave my client back the children. Now, don't forget, at the beginning of the story, I told I didn't tell you something. I think, as I recall correctly, the children had been taken away from the mother approximately 18 months before that trial date. And before that trial date, the kids had not lived with the mother. And the mother at the time of the trial was having a lot of problems even visiting her children. And my client's opinion was, and I believe her, that a lot of the visits were being sabotaged or canceled because of the social worker and foster mother may have been may have been scheming uh, to keep the children away from the mother. So 
here we are at this trial, a trial that nobody thought the mother had a chance of winning. And we win the trial without even putting on any evidence. We didn't need, I didn't have to call my client as a witness. I didn't have to call the father as a witness. I didn't have to call my client's uh, service providers like her parenting instructor, counseling instructor, her domestic violence counselor. I didn't have to call any of those witnesses. You know, I take that back. Before the case started, I told everyone I wanted one of the children, the six-year-old, to testify. And uh, we ended up uh, stipulating to the testimony of the child, which was the child wanted to go back home with her mother. Remember, before this trial began, I was told that the children were doing fine in the foster home and that um, the, uh, the children wanted to stay at the foster home. But when it really got down to it, and I made them drag that child into the courtroom, um, they then agreed that if the child put it, was put on the stand, that the child would testify that she wanted to come back home to the mother. So going back to the trial, judge makes a ruling that the department and the social worker hasn't met its burden of proof, keep the children away from the child. And the way the statute is written, that if they don't meet their burden of proof, the child must be returned to the parent. And in this case, the child, the judge ordered the children back to the parent. Now, obviously, my client was um, shocked. She thought the best thing that she was going to get out of this trial was that she'd get an additional six months of family reunification services in order to get the children back. And I must confess, before we began the trial, I was asking for that as a settlement because the, the workers' reports were so bad and so negative against the mother, I thought if they give my client another six months to get her children back, which it would take us like to the 24-month date, um, I was doing a great job. But that offer was refused by the social worker. It was refused by the minor's attorney. So we were forced to go to trial. And we went at trial. Um, because I put a witness on the stand, and I was able to cross-examine that witness. So, folks, if you're facing a trial, please talk to your lawyer about putting on witnesses, about presenting evidence. It's so very, very, very important. I wanted to also talk about trials at the beginning of the case. So let's say um, you've never been to juvenile court. Let's say the children have been taken away from you and uh, the social worker calls you up and says you have a court date, you know, in a couple of days. Um, at this point in time, a lot of clients or potential clients call me and ask me what they should do. Some of those clients hire me, some of them do not, and they go with the court-appointed attorney. One thing I want to let everybody know, when you show up for that first hearing, it's called the detention hearing. 
At that first hearing, what usually happens is that the detention hearing goes by very fast, maybe five or ten minutes. There is a, and I forget the exact name of this judicial committee, but there's a national judicial committee that that has opined that these initial detention hearings should take about an hour. That's a sharp contrast for the usual detention hearing that takes about 10 minutes. Because at this detention hearing, one thing can be done, and it's rarely done. You have the right to put the social worker who took your children on the stand and have your attorney question them either that day or the next day. What a prime opportunity for a defense attorney and a parent's attorney to get information not only about why the children were detained, but about relative placement. So what happens in most counties, um, the detention hearing takes place and it's about 10 minutes. Nobody ever mentions bringing in the social worker to be cross-examined. And the case is set for what's called a jurisdictional hearing or receipt of report date in, uh, they call it in Los Angeles. Between the detention hearing and the receipt of the report date, a dependency investigator is usually appointed and does an investigation and prepares what's called a jurisdictional and a dispositional report. On that date, um, the social worker also makes written recommendations. More times than not, the recommendation is is that the children should remain out of the care of the parents and placed in fo- and placed in foster home. Uh, and rarely um, is there a required discussion about placing children with relatives. Now, sometimes the children are already placed with relatives, sometimes not. But I want to let everyone know there's a hierarchy um, within the relative. Uh, placement. So, for example, I'm on a case right now in San Bernardino where they have placed the children with a relative, but the relative is the mother's second cousin. But the statute, the law also says that the children must be placed with relatives when that's possible and the relatives are appropriate. But it also gives a group of relatives priority over other relatives. And so the the group of relatives that must be first considered are the grandparents, the aunts and uncles of the child, and adult siblings. Now, in that particular case where the children in San Bernardino are placed with the mother's second cousin, there are two sets of grandparents. There are adult siblings around the country And there was even one adult um, sibling that lived in San Bernardino. However, because the mother's second cousin, and this is just my opinion, reported the case to the social workers to begin with, the social workers somehow rewarded that cousin, that second cousin, and placed the children there. Now, when we got the jurisdictional and dispositional report, there was no mention of these other relatives and whether they'd be um, appropriate placement for the children. So my client, I had my client request that the children be moved to one of the grandparents. 
And the social worker told my client no because the children were already bonding with the second cousin. Trial in that case, and I'm going to be explaining or arguing to the judge why these children should be moved from the second cousin's home uh, and placed with one set of the grandparents or some of the adult siblings, or even their aunt and uncles in this case, and I don't know if they can uh, even take the children. As a side note, one of the things that I usually do in cases is where the child is not placed with a relative, for example, child's placed in a foster home, or the child's not placed with a friendly relative, um, I have my clients make a list of 25 names. And uh, with those names, I need the addresses, telephone numbers, and emails addresses, and the relationship of that relative to the child. Now, these relatives, they can be anywhere in the world. So if you have a case in Los Angeles County, they don't have to be in Los Angeles County. They can be in San Francisco. They can be in Wyoming. They can be in Florida. They can be in New York. They can be in Canada, Mexico, South America, Europe, Asia. They can be anywhere in the world. And the court must consider placing these children with those relatives. Generally, when that happens and you have 25 names, um, it's hard for the social worker, number one, to investigate all of those names, but it's required by law. It's also hard for the social worker to place the child outside of the county. Um, and it's my opinion that since I believe the money files, follows the child, county like Los Angeles or San Bernardino doesn't want to place that child outside the county because they lose control of the child and they lose control of the money. So make that list and then in addition to making the list, talk to your attorney about a judicial counsel form, JV285. That's where each relative or nephrom, a close family friend, fills out and tells the judge officially, hey, I want to be considered for placement or visitation or taking the child to school or taking the child to counseling. There's a long list of what relatives and nephrims can be considered doing. Um, a lot of social workers will tell you, hey, these relatives and these family friends can't have any contact with the child. That's not true. So, you know, just Google, you know, JV285 if you live in California, and you'll find the judicial counsel form. And it's, I think it's like two or three pages. But when you read it, you're going to think, oh, my goodness, I never knew this. And don't, you know, don't listen to the social worker. Have your relatives and close family friends fill out that form and file it with the court. It'll be given, a copy will be given to all of the attorneys on the case. And then everyone will know that there's relatives and family friends out there that care about these children and that perhaps want placement. There's a new case that just came out um, and it's going to be controlling, I think, here in California, uh, where relatives have to be considered at all stages of the case. You know, the old rule was relatives had to be considered uh, through the disposition. Problem was, nobody ever talked about the relatives until, you know, months after the disposition because the social workers didn't fulfill their statutory duty to report to the court about all the relatives out there 
um, who are possible uh, placements. Um, I had a couple cases in the uh, county, in the city in the county of San Francisco, and uh, they had been sued so much that uh, they now hire an outside agency to do a due diligence to find relatives. Uh, the only thing is, is that when they call or contact the relatives, um, I've been told that uh, the relatives are kind of discouraged from taking the child and perhaps are, may even be misled. But, you know, if they call up a relative and the relative says, they tell the relatives, oh, you know, you don't really want to take care of this child. child has a lot of problems. It's going to cost you money, medical care, child care, blah, blah, blah. And the relative says no. The only thing that's reported back to the court is that the relative said no. Um, and the, perhaps the relative had been misled or even lied to about all the services and all of the money that is there to help a relative take the child. But I digress. Um, going back to the trial, after you get the jurisdictional report, and if you don't agree with the recommendation of the social worker, you should um, set the case for trial. Now, a lot of clients come to me, you know, after this this trial has happened, and they say to me, "Oh, Mr. Davis, I pled no contest." And I agreed for the child or the children to be placed in foster care. But I wish I would have had a trial. And when I listen to this, I kind of cringe because my first question is, well, why didn't you have a trial? And in, inevitably, the, the answer is something like this. Well, my, my attorney convinced me that I shouldn't have a trial my attorney said, you know, uh, it would be best if I just leave the children in foster care and come back in six months and get them. By the way, when you come back in six months, it's harder to get them under the law. But we'll talk about that later. And, you know, I just pled no contest. Well, here, here's the problem. The problem is, is that um, generally – now, now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes that could be good advice. In my opinion, it's rare that that could be good advice, but sometimes it could be. And here's what really is the problem. If you have a trial, you are able to present all of the witnesses that support you and you're able to cross-examine all of the witnesses that are against you. That's a really big deal. And a lot of times, there is not evidence that something happened. It's just people saying it and repeating, you know, things that they never heard, saw, or witnessed with their own, you know, eyes and ears. They weren't there, but, you know, somebody said something, and now they talk about it as if it were the truth, you know, like gossip, you know, and what's basically happening in a lot of these cases is that gossip is used to, um, against parents to convict these parents and to, uh, take their children away. So it's always my, um, philosophy that, uh, when in doubt, have a trial, call witnesses, cross-examine witnesses, um, 
our office did a trial for a guy. Um, I wasn't the attorney. Another attorney in my office did a trial where the man was con- um, was accused of sexually abusing, uh, I think it was two different children, in, uh, his stepchildren in, in, in the home. And uh, after a long trial, the judge in that case threw out the sexual abuse allegation and uh, found that it just wasn't true. But of course, before the trial began, everyone thought, you know, why is Davis's office wasting the court's time and having these long trials? And then the case gets ends up getting thrown out. So, you know, always talk to your attorney, your private attorney or your court-appointed attorney about having a trial. Now, the other important thing, and I don't think a lot of people understand this, is that when you plead no contest, you sometimes, by mistake, agree to leave the children in foster care or outside of the parents' home. And when you have a trial right at the beginning of the case, the court is actually doing two trials within one hearing, within one trial date. And the two trials are the jurisdictional hearing and the dispositional hearing. The jurisdictional hearing is just about whether the facts or some of the facts are true. Some of the allegations are true against the parent. However, the parent is entitled to a second trial. And sometimes it's done at the same time, but the second trial is a dispositional trial. So at the first trial, whether the facts or some of the facts are true, the court must um, determine by a preponderance of evidence that the parent is a risk to the child. Now, preponderance of evidence is generally more than 50%. It's the lowest burden of proof in California. But at the dispositional hearing, the court must determine, even though some or all of the allegations are true, the court then must determine whether the the parent is a substantial danger to each of the children and must determine that there there are no less restrictive alternatives to the children being placed outside the parent's home. And the court must do all of this by clear and convincing evidence, which I generally tell people is 75% or more. So in the second trial, they have, the social worker has to prove not that you're a risk, but that you're a substantial danger. Not just a danger, a substantial danger to the children. And you have to be one bad you-know-what to be considered a substantial danger to children. And they must prove that there are no less restrictive alternatives. And they must prove by both of these by clear and convincing evidence. So here, let me give you something that's a less restrictive alternative. Um, I represent a woman in Orange County. And um, there are allegations of drug history, which, by the way, are true. And we have a trial. And, of course, the social worker's attorney and the minor's attorney are ganging up on me. Luckily, in this case, though, the child is placed with the biological father who gets along with my client. 
Anyway, I argued to the judge during this trial, and I present evidence. Got to present the evidence, because argument is not evidence, that there are less restrictive alternatives. So I lost on the jurisdictional hearing because they had substantial evidence. They had a lot of evidence against my client. And I was going to lose on the clear and convincing uh, substantial danger because of my client's drug history. But what the county couldn't prove, they couldn't prove that there were no less restrictive alternatives. And as a matter of fact, in Orange County, they call it, um, I forget what they call it, but in every county, there's something called um, preservation services. And those services are just what they sound like. There are services given to the parent so that the child shouldn't have to be removed from the child, uh, from the parent. Now, in, in Orange County, they treat this um, these services as if they're the exception rather than the rule because they're very expensive services and very intense services. So here, I argued that the mother could move in with the father and that the father would always be supervising the mother to make sure that she wasn't becoming a risk to the child by, by you know, testing um, positive or using drugs. I also argued that uh, these family preservation services could be given to the mother where someone literally goes to the family home every day of the week, five to six times a week. And then they get to see with their own eyes for the social worker and for the juvenile judge that the child is being well taken care of and mother's not using drugs. So even though I lost on two of the three issues, I won on the third because there were family preservation type services that could be given and that my client was, you know, I was she was very cooperative very honest, and um, the judge ordered that she could move back in the home with the child and with the father. Child was, you know, um, I think about 10 months old, getting into some very important time periods in the child's life developmentally. And if the mother wasn't there, to be honest with you, I think it'd be more detrimental to keep the child away from the mother um, than to allow the mother to uh, live outside the home. Because it's really, you know, uh, can you imagine growing up without your mother? Um, so in that case, she got to move home. So getting back to the trials. So at the beginning of the case, those jurisdictional and dispositional trials are done at the same time. And you want to make sure that even though you plead no contest, you want to talk to your attorney about, hey, I'll plead no contest to an amended petition or to the petition, but I want to have I want to have a dispositional hearing. Now, the rule at the dispositional hearing, and, and of course this is my opinion, but I think it's backed up by some case law and statutes in California, is that the judge must look at the case on the date of the dispositional hearing, not on the date of the filing of the petition. So in that Orange County example that I gave you, on the date the case was filed, my client had given birth to a child 
the child had drugs in its system, illegal drugs, and, and, and my client had illegal drugs in her system. But we were probably three to four months out from that date when we had the dispositional hearing. So one of the things that I presented evidence on and I I, uh, argued was, Judge, there has been a substantial change from the date of the birth of this child to now where my client has been in a program. She's testing clean. She has a, a NA sponsor. She's doing parenting. You know, she's doing individual counseling to deal with her issues. And uh, the judge agreed. The judge agreed. And he told the, the social worker's attorney and the minor's attorney, who was against me to the bitter end, um, look, what, it seems like this lady has changed her life around. And despite her history, um, you know, I'm going to give her a chance. Now, the interesting thing was, and here's where evidence helps and where the minor's attorney, um, uh, I think, fell short. The minor's attorney kept arguing my client's drug history as if everybody knew that that today she was a substantial danger to the child. She was just using her own gut feeling, her own gut argument. If she wanted to drive that point home to the judge, she would have had to bring in an expert, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, preferably one who had examined my client, which no one ever did, and presented evidence that my client's history made her a substantial danger to the child on the day of that hearing, on or about that day of the hearing. Minor's counsel didn't do that. Minor's counsel just was arguing the point. And remember what I said earlier, argument is not evidence. So that's one thing that you should talk to your attorneys about, be, your, be they a privately hired attorney or a court-appointed attorney. Uh, argument is not evidence. I'm going to take a break uh, in talking about this trial stuff, and I'm going to take another call. Uh, the call is area code 626, ending in 12. Good morning. You're on with attorney Vince Davis. Good morning. Good morning. Did you have a story to share or a question to ask? A question to ask. Um, I'm on a uh, pre-adoption right now, but before um, I was um, given the 388 and my my granddaughter returned home. The worker has told me from the start, before I received my granddaughter, that... I was not to have a male companion, a male relative, or any friendship or anything like that in my home because they felt that that would be um, um, harmful to the child. Now, I, was in a re- I am in a relation since 2007 with someone, and um, I was told that he had to leave the, ho- the home. The moment my granddaughter was removed from my house, it had nothing to do with the case. Uh, actually, this is the only male um, person that she knows as uh, a good person and someone that she can trust since she was born. Now um, that I'm in the process of uh, adoption, she continues to to tell me, even though he's, he was fingerprinted a year ago and came clear, he's not permitted to come 
into my life. I asked uh, once I adopt a child if I'm going to be married because that will change the dynamic of uh, my granddaughter coming into my home. She said, uh, she went as far as telling me, I need a, a signed statement from you that you're not going to have this man in your life, in your home, in part of your child's um, visits or, or relation. How How is that possible? Is it Can they do that to me? Can they remove my child because I choose to date, because I choose to marry in the future? How is the law when it comes to something like this? Okay. I'm going to answer your question, but first, without mentioning your first or last name, are you a client of mine? Yes, I am. Okay. So I recognize your voice. So the social worker can tell you that. Whether it's enforceable or not is going to be up to the judge. So at our next court hearing, we're going to bring this up to the judge. Now, if there's no allegations that the man you have a relationship has done anything to anybody, then I think the social worker is way out of line. You know, um, the only way the social worker could do something like that and justify it and it be upheld is if the man had a drug history, a domestic violence history, if he had previously sexually abused a child, you know, something like that. But the social worker just can't say, oh, because he's a man, he can't be around the child and, you know, you can't date. And First of all, the social worker can't tell you you can't date and that you can't get married. Okay, I'm just going to say that flat out. All right. Now, but the social worker can try to control um, your fiancé's or your boyfriend's contact with the child. And if that's becoming a problem, at our next court date, I want you to send me an email, and at our next court date, we will address that with the social workers. Okay? Yes. Also, um, if someone is life-scanned and is being up to two months, that she will not let go of the information, and she gives partial information. And she says, no, I only have the criminal part. I don't have the child index part. So therefore, you cannot, this, this person cannot come to your house. She's probably lying to you. And I want you to send me an email on that because I can request through what's called discovery um, her to give me that information or her attorney. Generally speaking, life scan results take about literally 20 minutes. You can go to you can go to various places like police departments or private companies, and they'll life scan you. Um, oh my goodness! You get a certified, and you can get a certified copy. Some places I think even do it for free, and some places I just send a client in another case to go have the boyfriend uh, live scan because the social worker wrote in this report that the guy was a convicted felon and that uh, he had warrants out for his arrest. Therefore, he couldn't be around the child. And you know, when we got out of court, uh, the guy comes up to me and he says, "Look, Mr. Davis, um, I've never been convicted of anything." I don't have any warrants out. And he says, um, I've been arrested one time. You know, that was when I was a minor. And now the guy's like 35 years old. But he says, um, 
how can I prove this? And I said, well, I said, I want you to go to the Azusa Police Department and I want you to pay for a live scan. I think it cost him 20 or 30 bucks. He went, he brought me back the live scan and he got them certified. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, oh my God, what's the social worker talking about? I even talked to the social worker's attorney and, and, and said something like, oh, you know, they must have had the wrong. The guy has kind of a, I guess, a, a, a fairly popular name. And I said, you know, well, maybe, the, you know, she's using, she's mixing up the guy with another guy with the same name. Anyway, they're, ap- they're adamant. They're saying, no, we got the right day guy, blah, 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 blah. I said, well, I have a copy of his live scan results. May I send it to you? So we just recently filed a motion uh, to get that ban of the boyfriend not being around the child lifted um, because the social worker's report was either mistakenly or intentionally, and I think intentionally, of course, um, false. False. So the same thing is in your case. You can have your um, the person, your significant other, go get a live scan to prove that he's not a bad guy, um, uh, and show that he, he. No, I'm so sorry. Um, in 2015, he was live scanned by the previous worker who had come to my home to meet with us, and she said, "No, he has to leave." So although he's going to leave, and we purchased a home together with uh, the intention of having Isabel with us because it's about oh, Jesus Christ, there I go again. Um, the child was living in my home. And um, she mm-hmm. said, the social worker said, no. No one but you and the child in the home. And he was fingerprinted. He was, um, he was life scanned and he was, he passed. He was an IHSS nurse uh, for a whole year. So he ha- he's already... Ha- he he was already uh, he was he was determined that he was already clear. Mm-hmm. For some reason, they're just not permitting me to have anyone in my home. So my my family was broken, you know. Well, I, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take care of this at the next court date, okay? And at the oh, next court date, I'd like I like him to attend. Also. Because I recognize your voice, I, I wanted to tell you something. Um, I wanted to let you know that uh, I want to talk to you about filing a lawsuit against the county and the department and some of these social workers. Um, I'm not going to mention your name and I'm not going to tell people about your case, but it you came to me a long, long time ago. And it took me a long time for me to get your ch- grandchild placed with you. And um, I think at the beginning of the case, when it didn't happen overnight, you even questioned, you know, whether I was a legitimate attorney or I even knew what I was doing. And the reason why it took so long is because the department played dirty. They told lies about you. They used false evidence against you. And they just did everything possible to keep your grandchild away from you. In the end, we prevailed and we got your ch- grandchild back with you. And as I understand it, you're moving to adopt the child, which is great. I just want you to pursue with me a lawsuit against what these out- the outrageous acts they did against you and your grandchild. So we'll be talking about that in the future, okay? Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, 
on the sleeve, I did not have hired you to be my lawyer. I will not have my child home. That is a that is a one hundred percent fact. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that, and thank you for calling. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, I'm going to take uh, one more call here. Uh, it's area code five six two, ending in nine nine. Good morning. Hello, You're good morning. on with attorney. Hi, did you have a story or a question to ask? Um, I have a, uh, actually a question. Um, I wanted to know, uh, right now we're in the middle of a case with my son, and we're coming towards the end um the um, permanency hearing. And um, mm-hmm. I, had a, I, had, I had hired a private attorney, and uh, he left my case about uh, a week before the 12-month hearing, and I hadn't had contact mm-hmm. with him for about eight or nine months. And I feel like um, mm-hmm. everything that had happened in the case, he didn't, he didn't do anything, including the jurisdictional trial and everything. He didn't. He told us not to go to trial, um, plead no contest. And, and I'm listening to you, and I'm wondering, is there a way that we can um, appeal this or do something about um, through the case? Because um, nothing was, you know, we weren't defended whatsoever. Is there a way we can go back and say, hey, we weren't given the right information? We weren't, you know, to... Yeah. The the answer is yes. And depending on the facts and circumstances, it could be very difficult. But there is something you can do. May I ask you a couple questions about the case? Sure. Yeah, sure. That's no problem. Um, When was your last court date and when is your next court date? Um, our last court date was on March 7th, and our next court date is um, scheduled for July 5th, and that's the permanency hearing, and they are um, trying to terminate uh, parental re- uh, rights. Okay. Have they terminated your pr- your family reunification services? Yes, sir. They have terminated your family reunification services already? Yes. Yes, sir. Okay. So... You're going to have to move very fast. Are your kids, are the children with a relative? Um, they're with my parents who are trying to adopt him. Uh, they don't feel that he should ever come home again. So they're working against me, not for, not to help. Okay. What I would suggest, because there's a long list of things that you should be doing right now, um, may I ask who your attorney was or is? Um, right now, I have. They, I was given another public defender. Um, okay, so this. don't tell. Okay, not that name, but the name before the oh. attorney before that. That left the case, um, Mark Massey. Okay, so your case is in Los Angeles. Yes, sir. Okay, um, so what I want you to do is, after this call, I want you to call my office and schedule a free initial consultation. Since you're in the L.A. area, it will be better if you come to my office and meet with me. And that could be, you know, uh, early next week or, you know, whenever it's good for you. And uh, you call the office and and you make this appointment. So you have a pen and a piece of paper. I'll give you the phone number to call. Yes, sure. I sure do. Okay. So call 888-888-6582. That's 888 
888-888-6582. Tell mm-hmm. them when you call because my receptionist, uh, my rece- there's a receptionist there today from tw- uh, 9 to 5, and she, there's another receptionist that works tomorrow. We have a skeleton crew that works on Sundays from 12 to 5. So when you call, you say, look, I talked to Vince on the radio show today. He told me to call and make an appointment for a free initial consultation. With that, they'll go ahead and schedule you for the consultation. They will email me and say, hey, did you talk to this lady, blah, blah, blah. She wants to make a free initial consultation. And the answer will be yes. What's your first name? Jennifer. Okay, so Jennifer, just do that. um, And uh, when they email me, I'll verify you. And I'll see you next week. And one of the things I want you to do when you come in for our meeting, if you can, is before our meeting, Go to the court and get um, all of the minute orders or as many of the minute orders as you can, starting with the last court hearing going backwards. Okay. Okay. That's going to be very important. I need to see those minute orders. Sometimes when you go there, you're going to say, oh, we're going to only get to be the last three or the last four. We're not going to give you all of them. Um, You know, so whatever you can get, bring those with you to the meeting. Better yet, before the meeting, you should probably email those to me. So okay. um, my email address is, if you have a pen, yes, sir. the letter the letter V as in Vincent, mm-hmm. at vincentwdavis.com. The letter V at vincentwdavis.com. Email those to me before our meeting. And if our meeting's on Monday, you know, and you're you're able to get them Monday morning, still email them to me. You can scan or fax them to me, okay? And I will look forward to meeting with you, Jennifer. How many children are involved? One. How old? He's five. All right, so I'll tell you everything that you need to do and you need to start looking at and planning in order to try to in order to try to get your child back, okay? Yes, sir. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, and I look forward to meeting you. Thank you very much. All right? All right. So, um, wow, we're coming to the end of the show. That went by pretty fast. I just want to mention a few things uh, regarding uh, our services. Um, if you want to have a, an initial consultation with me, it's free. it's free. We don't charge for it. You can come into the office and meet with me. You can do it over the phone. And I'm even starting to do meetings and telephone or communicate with clients and prospective clients by Skype, skype.com. It's free. It's so great. It's video and audio, and it's free, and we're talking to each other. It's almost like you were in my office. So if you need consultation, if you need some type of second opinion, please call me. Um, finally, I, I want to talk to people about voting. If you haven't done so, go online today or go online Monday and register to vote. The elections are coming up. It's important to vote because judges, juvenile judges run for re-election every so many years, and you want to make sure you're voting for a judge that will keep families together. We'll see you next week on the air.